sucker from the news. It's not like that, cause it's a thing. It is something that you do. Do, 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 do. What's up, everybody? It's Jeremiah Hosea, and I'm joined by my good friend and co-host today, Brother Craig Blue. Say hello, please. Good afternoon, everybody. Today we have an incredible guest again, and I'm so excited to get into this conversation. I've been learning so much this week in preparation for this show. I try to be a Renaissance man as well as I can. I'm an amateur historian in my own right. I think we should all study history as well as we can. And today's guest helps provide us with a, a historical framework that is a very powerful thing to encounter. Today's guest, Stephen Newcomb, is going to introduce us, if we haven't been familiarized with the concept already, with the Christian doctrine of discovery, which is equivalent, as we're going to find out, to the doctrine of domination. And we're going to talk about how this mindset plays out in everyday life, how this sort of juggernaut that created what we call American civilization has not been stopped at any point. That colonist mentality, that imperialist mentality, it has continued to this day. Of course, we've gotten more sophisticated superficially. We have more technology now. We have more ways of deluding ourselves. But um, that monstrosity has never been addressed. The train was never taken off the track. And my good friend Craig Blue, as we discussed on Baseline Episode 6, has a particular attitude about the holidays. And we've had this conversation for years, so it's going to be really exciting to have Stephen Newcomb provide some scholarship to support our conversation. So, Brother Blue, how did you enjoy your holiday that I refer to as no thanks taking? <laughs> well, you know, because it's a time where people are released from work and um, can see family. I saw my family. Uh, my brother and his wife took a good friend of ours, uh, Carlos Galeanos, another bass player, wonderful musician, and we broke bread with family. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And on the line, we'd like to introduce our guest, Brother Stephen Newcomb. How are you today, Stephen? I'm doing well. Thank you for uh, having me on your show. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. So we want to introduce the audience to your scholarship, basically. Um, you've written some books with some very powerful titles. You are a foremost authority in regard to papal documents that go back centuries, that provide us with a framework of a lot of what we witness in the world today. So can you just introduce us, basically, to the doctrine of discovery, which as you'll explain, translates to a doctrine of domination. The floor is yours. Oh, sure. <clears throat> well, I'm the author of one book, Pagans in the Promised Land, Decoding the Doctrine of Christian Discovery, 
and co-producer of a documentary movie, The Doctrine of Discovery Unmasking, The Domination Code, by my, um, uh, directed by my friend Sheldon Wolfchild. And uh, I am Shawnee and Lenape, Delawansa uh, Steve Newcomb, Lulalinda Mele Balk. It's a greeting to say I'm glad to uh, reach out to all of you that are gathered here today for your show. And um, the effort to understand this goes back to my teenage years. And um, when I read a book called Bury My Heart, It Wounded Me by D. Brown back, I think it was published in 1970. And I'll get into some of that, a uh, little bit of personal history briefly. But before I do that, I wanted to begin by setting the context for this conversation. I think that's very crucial. And that context, as I understand it, begins with our free and independent existence, extending back to the beginning of time through our oral histories and oral traditions as the original nations of this Turtle Island continent. And the contrast between that free existence and the system of domination that was brought by ship across the ocean, by many ships, actually, and imposed on everyone and everything. And once we set out that contrast, then we also have the view from the shore, looking out at those ships coming sailing toward shore invasively. And we also have the view from the ship, looking at our ancestors. And once we have those four perspectives, then we have a very deep and meaningful starting point for a conversation because most people never think back to an original free existence. They're just in the midst of whatever we're in these days. And for a long time, I never thought of that either. I just would begin with the Vatican papal bulls and so forth and, and uh, U.S. Supreme Court rulings. But over time, when I uh, learned from my friend and mentor, Berto Kilstrade, a traditional Ogallala Lakota elder and educator and ceremonial person, I had the good fortune to work with Virgil for more than 25 years. And Virgil was a fluent Oglala Lakota language speaker and understood the origin story uh, and the uh, wisdom, the deep, deep wisdom and understanding of his people. And I was so fortunate to be able to learn from him and many other traditional elders and spiritual people. So that, that influences my work, my effort to also engage in scholarship and so forth. The way I guess I would uh, begin is to, uh, as far as the system of domination that you've so, uh, you know, sensibly identified right away, it starts out with those Vatican documents that were issued shortly, maybe 50 years before Columbus, going back to 1452 and 55 and so forth, and a bunch of dates back in the 1400s. And the documents are directed initially at the western coast of Africa and to the Muslim world. And um, But it's instructing or supposedly authorizing the king of Portugal to go to the western coast of Africa and as Pope Nicholas V, States for the monarch of Portugal um, 
to go to the western coast of Africa and to invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, pagans, and other enemies of Christ to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and take away all the possessions and property. And when we look at each of those terms, we go deep into each and every one of those terms, and we try to think about, gee, what do all of these have in common? Over the course of many decades, about four, four decades now, I eventually understood that all of these loop right back to the theme of domination, which, of course, is being compelled to live subject to the will of someone else. And or or being um, made to um, be com- basically to live under coercion and some kind of dictatorial rule, right? That's what domination is. You can think of it as a, a foot of, of on the neck of someone who is being held under uh, control and force. And so the um, way in which those those terms in Latin very important to go into Latin with all this, but they play out in many of those documents and um, without getting too specific with all the dates and so forth. But right after Columbus set sail, otherwise known as Cristobal Colon set sail, he uh, successfully went across the Atlantic Ocean to the Bahamas and back to the Iberian Peninsula. And when the king and queen of Spain found out what he had succeeded in doing, they appealed to the Pope to issue documents to them, or a a document specifically, to affirm for them the right to take possession, as it's usually stated, uh, of those lands that Columbus had located. And, um, And so the Pope did that. Pope Alexander VI did that. But there were four different documents issued at that time in 1493. And without getting too much into detail, basically the Pope is talking about the propagation of the Christian Empire, Christiani Imperii Propagationum, and to the reduction or subjugation of the barbarous nations, Ac Barbarae Nationis Depermantur. Depremantur comes from the Latin word deprimo, meaning to press down, hold down, keep down. So that's where that idea of oppression comes in. And so this, this is the more terminology of domination. And in fact, when you go deep into the documents, and I don't have this particular sentence memorized in Latin, in the original Latin, but I have the English translated, in the May 3rd, Papal Bull, or I guess it's the May 4th Papal Bull, there's a sentence in the document that says, we trust in him, capital H on him, so that's talking about their deity, from whom empires and dominations and all good things proceed. Now, when you go and look at the English translation of that, it uh, actually is listed as governments. But Eventually, I had the good sense to to compare the English and the Latin back and forth, and when I looked for the Latin word for governments, it was dominationes, dominations. So I simply stated um, in my own way to translate it in that manner. So flash forward um, over a long period of time, you have 
the monarchs of uh, England and France joining in. So you've got England, France, Portugal, uh, Spain. You've got, uh, to some extent, Holland, and you've got uh, Russia and so forth. You've got all of those colonizing powers uh, over a period of centuries that are following the same patterning of claiming a right of domination uh, over any places that don't yet have Christian domination established there. And that's what is referred to by discovery. It's the effort to identify those geographical locations where non-Christians are living and where Christian domination has not yet been established or constituted, as they say. There's a sentence in the Papal Bowl that talks about the... Um, dominio temporale alicorum dominorum Christianorum constitute non assent, which is just basically saying that where domination has not yet been constituted or established and maintained. So the, when you look at all the English charters and French charters and royal charters, various royal charters, that idea that they have a right of domination following from the chosen people in the promised land in the Bible is utilized over the course of centuries. And, of course, all the profit motive and greed and everything that's mixed in there as the, the real impetus. But when you finally come to the establishment of the United States and the American Empire, as the U.S. Supreme Court has referred to it two different times, one in 1820 and one in 1901, uh, you, you see that the same pattern has been used by the United States government, specifically the U.S. Supreme Court in 1823, in a case called Johnson versus McIntosh. And this is the 200-year mark of that decision. And Chief Justice John Marshall, on behalf of the unanimous court, actually said that the first Christian people to identify lands inhabited by natives who were heathens have the ultimate dominion, they have the right to ascribe to themselves the ultimate dominion, and the native peoples, uh, or the so-called heathens, only have a, a right and title of occupancy, meaning they can live there, but they don't own it. And, um, and this is where it gets very interesting, because the word own and ownership goes to the concept of property, obviously. And just to wrap this all up, and I'll, I'll pause at this after I make this statement, that once you look at the idea of property and you look very specifically at the definition, there are several that are important, one of them by William Blackstone in his commentaries on the common law, and it refers to property as despotic dominion, which is obviously domination, and he traces it to Genesis 128 in the Bible, subdue and dominate, dominate as Richard Friedman translates it. And then also you have in the Ballantine's Law Dictionary from 1969 the definition of not the material object itself, but the right of domination rightfully obtained over such object. And then the book by Lance Liebman and Charles Monroe Har titled Property and Law, they refer to the property as the first establishment of socially approved physical domination over some part of the natural world. So what's been going on and the whole basis of the United States, of state systems throughout the planet, of what I call the global system of domination, 
is that there have been elite, powerful financial and political interests that have been able to take their claim of right of domination and use that against everyone and everything for profit and for increased power and so forth. And that's the context in which we find ourselves today, no matter what particular issue we're dealing with. Outstanding. Wow. Wow. You really... Uh set us straight right there, <laughs> Professor Newcomb. <laughs> um, yeah, that's outstanding. I want to say, first of all, I have Native American blood myself. My grandfather, who my son is named after, Dr. Marcus McBroom, had a Cherokee grandmother who he actually grew up with on a farm in Ohio. He said she was as mean as hell, but uh, he loved her. That was his grandmother. And somehow I heard we have Blackfoot. I don't know where the Blackfoot comes into play, but I, was, I grew up being told I have Cherokee and Blackfoot blood, and I was very proud of that. And I also had a babysitter who was a full-blooded Mohawk, uh, Lorraine Canoe, who was a huge influence in my life. I was just very proud of my Mohawk babysitter, and I uh, went upstate to the reservation uh, Aquasasne, I believe it's called. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And sure. I spent some time there as a child. That was very impactful, going to an outhouse, um, seeing... You mean a longhouse? Well, uh, no, using the outhouse, actually. <laughs> like, no indoor bathroom. Oh, oh, I get it. Yeah. I get it. You know, I mean, oh, you grow up in the city and... you know, Oh, I see. You know, I see what you're saying. It's pretty yeah. startling to be like, hey, wait, you know, you go to this little shack up there to use the bathroom. And Got throw, it. And throw yeah. some lye on top when you're done. Yeah, um, but um, I've always been mystified by indigenous yeah. culture. I've always been impressed by it, and um, I think it's so essential that we address these truths. I don't believe we can gloss over the fundamental truth of the situation. I believe what you're saying is extremely powerful. I'm very proud to have you as a guest on this program, and my friend Craig Blue is not here by accident as well because the indigenous consciousness has always been a part of our ongoing conversation. Mm -hmm. He introduced me to a really powerful book many years ago that had a big influence on me called Touch the Earth. Mm -hmm. That was a book of Native American spirituality. And Blue would get into these arguments with people who would try to press Western religion Christian religion on us. And I remember one time I was so <laughs> amused and impressed with Blue when he was arguing with someone. I can't even remember who he was arguing with, but someone was going into their Christian doctrine stuff. And Blue, I guess, was a little bit fed up by then. And he just said, look, take this book. And he handed them the book, Touch the Earth. He says, this book, this is what I believe. <laughs> and one thing I remember from that book is he said, or I don't remember who he was because it was different uh, voices who were who were uh, shared in the text uh different uh individuals from different groups but um one person i remember saying look your bible is a man-made book you can lay it down on the ground and eventually the sun and the rain and the wind will get to it the insects will eventually help that book be absorbed right back into the earth my bible is the whole of creation He said, I wake up and I open my arms to the sun. I dive into the river bodily. This is my Bible. So I think we should also remember that before the written word, there's also a planet Earth that's right under our feet. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. before we get into abstractions, 
we should acknowledge that. Brother Blue, what would you like to say here? Well, first we... of all, good afternoon, Stephen. It's uh, wonderful yeah. to hear you lay it out for myself and the listeners. And um, I was very, my mom had buried my heart at Wounded Knee. And I read that book when I was in my early 20s, probably 2021. And that changed my perspective. Um, I have a great grandfather from Georgia, um, the Prince family, and um, he was part African part Cherokee, and on my mom's side, uh, Floridians, who have, we have some Seminole heritage down there, some some fighters. Mm. So um, in reading that book that my mom didn't even remember that she had on the on the shelf, I saw it, and it absolutely changed my life. You know, I even yeah. did an art piece about 1868 and the, and you know, the, the walk of natives in, in the snow and frozen bodies, all these things like just were seared on my mind after reading this book and outside of African-American activism, Marcus Garvey, Dr. John Henry Clark, the, um, the Black Panther socialist movement, I became more in tune with um, the indigenous fight for land and, um, and for restitution with lands taken illegally, in my view, basically um, stolen from these people. And so that also changed my whole idea about activism outside of just being a person of African descent, but also having some roots with my indigenous family. And, um, mm. and I don't think the pe- and I just learned about the doctrine of uh, discovery um, mm-hmm. and that there's people still, there's people protesting as we speak that the Pope and the Vatican declined that and stopped that. And, you know, most of us don't know that that, doctrine is still in that mindset is still in effect today and they will not stop absolutely and i want to use that to segue into the fact that yesterday was no thanks taking as i like to call it and i have to say it was the most awkward no thanks taking i've ever had at this point in my life i just don't like playing along i just feel Mm -hmm. awkward about it when people say happy Thanksgiving, I don't even want to say the words. I just nod. I say, thank you, you too. But I, I, I want to explain to them, this is not right. You know, we really shouldn't be celebrating a massacre and we shouldn't be actively engaged in hypocrisy. So can you give us a, a rundown a little bit or, or your take as an indigenous scholar on the holiday that is generally called Thanksgiving that I call no thanks taking? Could you please provide us with one, some uh, historical insight, but also how do you feel about it personally as an indigenous person? How do you feel experiencing what we experience well, on that day? It, it's kind of interesting because I, as I began to mull it over in my mind, as far as what I might say in response to this question, I don't really have much of a response. I don't have a great deal of specific historical insight into that time, I know that the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag people and the people of that area in what's now called Massachusetts, um, that the way in which they they remember that is involving a very terrible massacre that they experienced. Mm -hmm. And I've talked with some of them about that. And it's, uh, of course, the way in which we're, any of us, as people that come from original nations, are able to think back on our history and think of the various 
atrocities that were committed against our peoples, <clears throat> the average everyday person, I'm sure, is not thinking of those types of things as uh, the point of what they're sitting down to as far as a meal and all that. But the, but the point ought to be that it would be really wonderful if people would have a deeper insight into the true nature of the history of the United States and uh, not only deal with things on a superficial level. I think the other part of it that's kind of uh, ironic or interesting is that thank, being thankful for life, being thankful for creation, as was stated a bit ago, um, by, by Craig, um, is, is uh, one of our tenets. I mean, we have the, the whole point of being thankful for every single day and also the principle of generosity. And I think that if those colonists had not been greeted by people that actually had integrity and had the right understanding of how to behave beneficially toward one another and all living things, they would have just been wiped out when they first set foot on shore. But instead they were welcomed, as my friend Virgil points out in our documentary movie. And, and so that principle of generosity and hospitality has, in a sense, worked against us to a great extent. And I think that as more and more people become aware of the correct understanding of history, uh, from, from our vantage point, anyway, uh, those of us that study these things, that perhaps they will have more compassion uh, not just for our peoples, but for all peoples. I mean, I think that's the whole key point, is that we have original instructions and teachings that guide us, and the, the point is to live in a manner that's beneficial to one another in all living things. And the, the tenets that, or teachings that Virgil taught me, the seven laws, Uope, and, um, you know, for example, to care in your heart or to be generous and to have compassion for others, for all living things and to have patience and uh, fortitude and bravery and courage and to um, have, you know, seek wisdom and understanding and to live according to the laws and, and the understandings of the right way to live that's crucial to what, where we need to go I think when we look at so many conflicts in the world, I wonder what is the model for that other peoples have for what is a healthy way to live and a healthy existence? Great because point. it seems to me that all the destruction of standards is one of the most dire and diabolical things that has happened over the course of the last several generations has been going on for a long time, but there's an acceleration, it seems to me, mm. that whether it's, uh, well, any kind of standard, I don't care what it is. Sure. If, if the corporations are able to contaminate all the food, then there's no category called organic. Right. Because it's all contaminated. Mm. And it just seems to me that we have to have models of positivity and models of beauty and truth and just being a, a good person that uh, ought to guide us. But you look at how much madness and insanity there is in the world, it's very unfortunate. So I think, um, anyway, that's, I, I don't have too much to say about Thanksgiving particularly in terms of a 
specific uh, rundown on, on exactly how that came to pass. But I, those are the general comments that I had at the moment. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. That's, thank that's, you. That's outstanding. And this show is a medical freedom-themed show. We make no mistake about that. We make no apologies about that because uh, I lived here in New York City. I was a teacher for 20 years. I taught mostly young people how to play chess. I'm a bass player who's played in venues all around the city and many venues around the country and various venues around the world. And all of a sudden, I was prevented from making my income right as I was expecting my second child. I had a young son and uh, a daughter on the way, and I'm suddenly uh, the boxer getting thrown in the ring with his hands tied behind his back. I'm being prevented from making my income, and then I'm being told, oh, wait, for you to return to teaching and to return to performing, you have to take experimental drugs to return to your job and I one couldn't believe that that was the environment uh, that I found myself in and I couldn't believe that many of my comrades or former comrades I don't know where we stand now in a lot of cases uh, completely I'm sorry I don't mince words sold out to this regime I couldn't believe it I thought wait a second is this regime that's giving us these experimental experimental uh, emergency quote-unquote interventions into our bodies is this different than the government that bombed Iraq, that bombed Libya, that bombed Afghanistan? Is it different than the government that couldn't fix the water in, situation in Flint? In Flint? True so indeed. you can't fix something that's going on in a town, but you're going to fix something for the whole wide world. You didn't come up with a cure for cancer. You don't have a cure for the common cold, but you're going to whip together a cure for the super cold and make me take it. So... I know that you've made some comments expressing uh, what I would identify as a medical freedom sort of sentiment. Um, I'm very curious about your reaction to the COVID regime as it emerged, the COVID agenda, and also uh, your up-to-date thoughts about COVID as far as where we stand now and all that we've been through. So I guess, what was your reaction and where do we stand now from your perspective? Well, I, I think I have a, a free and independent uh, existence perspective on all that, the, uh, an original free existence perspective. The, the thing that's really critically important for, for my way of thinking about all this is the right to inquire into what's actually going on and has been going on. And I think that when you have a situation where people are being coerced through the system of domination into taking a particular course of action without being informed. They cannot possibly give informed consent if they're not informed. But but this is one of those standards that seems to be thrown out the window or destroyed that there's no such thing as informed consent. And this is the problem with an, an authoritarian or totalitarian set up because it's total control and it's whatever the authorities say is uh, good for you. You have to take their word for it and there's no right to question or challenge or think or speak out or whatever. And so that's really what we're seeing is I think the, and I mentioned this in the end of my book, toward the end of my book, that that seemed to be the, 
direction that everything was headed in as of 2008 when the book came out. And certainly that has come to pass. So I think that those of us who have had the good sense and the opportunity to really delve into all these things, probably uh, anyone that's really been looking will see that this is something that has a nefarious intent. And, uh, yep. you know, there's a lot of ways we can to express that nefarious intent. But my goodness, why in the world should people be compelled to do something that doesn't make sense? But you're not going to get certain people to think about these things because they don't like to think at all anyway. And even well, some of my very, very <laughs> smartest friends uh, went, and uh, who I highly admire, but when it came to some of these types of things, we had a very big divergence in terms of how we came down on all this, you know. So, um, and I'm being very, very straight up about that. Uh, people that don't want to think or don't perhaps know how to think, it's not, you know, I'm not trying to be mean about it, but when you see someone driving around in their car with a mask on, with their windows rolled down, you got to wonder what in the world's going on. <laughs> sure, true indeed. Or, Good point. Good example. Or, or people that are walking around in a, in a heavy breeze and they got a, a mask on. Right. It's like, how in the world are you going to get a, any kind of whatever, communicable anything, uh, in that kind of a, um, you know, weather situation. So, uh, those are just some initial comments, but, uh, I think it's horrific that anyone would be coerced into getting something that has not been substantiated in any way, shape, or form as being safe. Um, I called Moderna, as a matter of fact, at one point, and I happened to have a sheet that my friend had given me. He got the shot, and and so he, gave me, he sent me a photo of this sheet. And so I called Moderna, and I said, yeah, I have this sheet with these ingredients on here, but I'm having a difficult time making sense of them. Hmm. And so uh, is there a way I can research this information? And the pharmacist said no. Hmm. And that's something that will have to be dealt with by your primary care physician. And eventually I ended up saying, well now if my primary care physician recommends that I get the shot, on what basis will uh, he or she be recommending it as being safe? And at that point, the pharmacist hung up. Huh. I guess that word safe is not uh, a pretty word to them, you know? Right. Well, you know, two <laughs> things come to yeah. mind quickly that I want to mention, which is yeah. I, we, we were talking about this on the way over here, which is you can't say emergency use authorization and then say safe and effective because emergency use authorization means we're not sure. It means rush through the regulatory process. It means yes. it was not scrutinized so that we cannot – you know, refer to this product with any level of certainty. So there's a contradiction right there in the safe and effective claim to state this so certainly when you can't be certain. That's what emergency use authorization means. Yeah. Yes. I mean, there's so many details with this. And Sasha Latipova, I think her her research is just extraordinary. I agree. And when we, we go into that in detail, it was never intended to be safe or effective. That wasn't even part of the mix, right? right. And so, um, you know, what this actually is or uh, getting to an approximation of what it is, we can certainly say what it isn't. Hmm. Uh, and that and it isn't uh, safe or effective. And now we're seeing tremendous 
uh, horrific statistics for mm-hmm. those of us that are able to pay attention right. as to the real harm that's being caused. And it's, yeah, it's just, I mean, at a certain point, there's almost no words as to how horrific this thing is. Yeah, seriously. Nefarious. Um, you did say nefarious. And yes. that was a great choice of words because, yes. I mean, yeah. the things that we're witnessing at this point, I mean, First of all, folks, there are documentaries. There's several full-length documentaries about the harms of these things. I mean, there are people just shaking and, and stuttering and people whose lives are ravaged by neurological disorders. We have oncologists saying this is increasing rates of cancer, that they're seeing people who are being diagnosed initially with stage 4 cancers. That Young, people yeah. Young people with myocarditis. Young people. Teenagers. People. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah, people dropping on the soccer field, uh, first ever heart attack in the history of Monday night football, the, the history NFL. of the NFL, period. There's never been a football game that was stopped because a player had a heart attack. With all those insane injuries that they have, they stopped the game and said, this brother was about to die. Sure. They, they revived him on the field. So there's so many indications that something's going wrong, and for some reason, the people who push this agenda, they are so disciplined, they remain unfazed. But then our friends, you know, our what we would think would be highly astute, intelligent people, you know, looked at us when we said There's, there has to be a problem with this. We're being offered something. We're being offered a vaccination, but we're not being offered health care. We're not being offered so many other things that need to be addressed in the, just communities in general, whether it's black, white, Asian in communities in general, but we're being asked, or no, now we're being mandated to take a vaccination that totally ignores our indigenous body rights and sovereignty. And then we're being punished for it by losing work, losing income, not being able to provide for our families, not me and you, not being able to teach anymore, me teaching art, you teaching chess. And then it goes about dominion over my body. Who has dominion over my body? And for people to not understand how other people wouldn't feel comfortable with that type of arrangement. Like, okay, you want to be experimented on. You're gung-ho about science, and you want to be experimented on. Okay, well, that's you. But you despise me for not wanting to be experimented (laughs) on, for being suspicious? And in particular with a country that has a history of experimenting on its citizens, on its unaware or misinformed or uninformed citizens, ah, you got to step, you know, come on. And pharmaceutical companies that have histories of billions of dollars of lawsuits for products that have actually killed people. Right, like no one's ever heard (laughs) of a class action lawsuit. No one's ever heard of a tire recall. Like to claim that things are perfectly safe when you're dealing with mass manufacturing, when you're dealing with the administration of a product, when there's so, there's a there's a a chain link of events where so many things could go wrong at any level. Like you know, one of the red flags for me was they were saying that um, these products need to be maintained at subthermal temperatures, like some insane you know temperature like negative 70 degrees well really you think some truck driver somewhere um you know might not have slipped up maybe and and didn't set the thermostat properly you know and and not for nothing i don't want to go into walgreens cvs to take a vaccination (laughs) without concerning you know without no medical examination not talking to my doctor you don't know my medical history but i'm gonna walk into cvs oh no a a parking lot (laughs) in city field 
with nurses and I'm going to take this. No, 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 no. And now I with know about people who aren't even nurses who've never even been taught how to aspirate a needle. Yeah. So as you could tell, Stephen, <laughs> we, we've talked about this quite a bit. Thank you so much, Stephen. <laughs> you, you, you guys seem rather passionate about this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was, you know, and the interesting thing is, is, you know, people will say, oh, you're obsessed with this. Well, yeah, hell yeah. I'm obsessed with not being tampered with in the way of body sovereignty. I'm obsessed with not being coerced to take medical products and for my children to not have to deal with a world like that. So, yeah, I think it was a major transgression. And it's really weird for me to hear activists who are all about unpacking things and confronting social ills and injustices. Now they want to play cat got your tongue, you know, sweep the elephant under the rug. Well, no, that's not what my activist training has indicated. We we have to address injustices until they're fully dealt with. Sure. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, justice has not been done. Well, you know, that, that's a funny word, that word justice. When uh, Columbus went to different islands, uh, he erected two symbols. One was a cross to represent the Catholic faith and Christian religion, and the other was a gallows with 13 nooses to hang Indians and the number 13 corresponding to Jesus and the 12 apostles, and that gallows was meant to represent justice, hmm. which is retribution for not obeying the authorities that have arrived. Right. And and then you have to make amends for being on their land before they got there, you know, mm. type of thing. That the kind of insanity, right? right? So the reason why the domination framework is so crucial and important in this conversation is to understand that there are seven main concepts that serve as the context for um, that for the, for the overall society. And so the first one is civilization, and that means the forcing of a cultural pattern on a population to which it is foreign. So there's the colonization, the invasion, right? Right. And so the civilization is the outcome of that forcing process. And then you have state, which Max Weber referred to as, and he referred to it as a relation of men dominating men. If the state is to exist, the dominated must submit themselves to the authority claimed by the powers that be. And the next one is ascendancy, which is controlling influence, governing power, domination. That's in the actual dictionary. It's one of the few words in the English language that has the domination in the definition. Mm. And then the other one is um, uh, sovereignty, which Jonathan Havercroft in his book, Captives of Sovereignty, defines as an as an unjust form of political domination that limits human freedom and he's following several different uh, political philosophers in that definition and then you have property which is i've already defined that earlier and uh, that's the basically the framework of domination once again and then you have dominion which goes to dominium in latin which means domination and then you have empire, the American empire. So if we understand that the root, the seed and the root, and everything that extends from the seed and the root is all looping back to domination, 
and a manifestation and an outgrowth of domination or a claim of a right of domination, I don't want to say they have that right, but they're claiming the right, then we can begin to get at what we're really dealing with here. And one last word that's really important, too, is the word government. Mm. If you take that word and break it apart, you have go over M-E-N-T. And so the contraction, by dropping one of the O's, you get govern, and then you get M-E-N-T, which means a state or condition of. So it's a state or condition of going over others. And, and Or you can break it apart so that it says go over men. Hmm. And But the, the theme is the same. So when people say, well, the government, well, the domination, if they got in the habit of saying the domination is now mandating shots or mandating whatever, <clears throat> we would be more accurate in the way that we're expressing the English language. Right. Well, that's that's excellent. I'm I'm so thrilled to have this on my program, honestly, because it just provides us with a very helpful framework. And um, actually, we have a little bit of time. Brother yeah. Stephen Newcomb said he'd be open to taking calls. If uh, anyone would like to call in, you're welcome to. Please be concise. We have a, an, a distinguished scholar on the line, mm -hmm. so try to be organized with your thoughts. This is not an open invitation to rant in, in this case. In some cases, I invite you to rant. I love a good rant. <laughs> but today we do have a focused program. So uh, if you'd like to join the conversation, please call 888-874-4888. I'm really sorry last week. I didn't mention the phone number. I was like, hey, everyone call in. And thankfully, my esteemed listeners know the phone number in the first place. But for anyone listening for the first time, I kind of messed up in that instance of not mentioning the actual phone number. 888-874-4888. That's the number to call in to this program. And please keep that on file because um, we are going to uh, have callers on average – um, most programs. Sometimes we just frankly don't have time, but um, we like to have callers on this program. This is a community-based program. And of course, you know the way you support this program is by subscribing to my Substack or buying a chess lesson through remotelearningchess.com remotelearningchess.com or buying a song. I'd actually love if you guys could buy the intro music to this show. That's my song. That's me singing, playing bass. I wrote that song. I produced that song with a great producer who resides in India, Rohan Solomon. Uh, there's amazing musicians featured on there. We have um, Ryan Waters on guitar. We have Jerome Jordan on guitar. We have Ivan Katz on drums. We have uh, Kiara Fossey on violin. We have Lene Harris on cello. So we got a lot of folks to play on that song. And I'd so appreciate it if you bought it for one buck because I do produce this show every week. And I do have two young children to feed. And uh, every little bit counts. Mm -hmm. So do we have any calls on the line, Kyle? Oh, and uh, Stephen, while we're waiting for a, a call to get patched yeah. through, um, can you please let us know how people can follow up? with your work. Um, yeah, uh, uh, the, um, uh, well, we have a website, originalfreenations.com, and my contact information is on there. So uh, I could be emailed at, or info at originalfreenations.com. But uh, also, 
we have the uh, my Substack, the Domination Chronicles, or Stephen. You know how it goes. I don't have it memorized. Stephen Newcomb at Substack dot com, I believe it would be something. Like whatever you probably know that better. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna find. Uh, we may find it right here. Um, cause I was, but in in any case, um, yeah. So those are a couple ways people can get in touch, and we have a tremendous amount of information on OriginalFreeNations dot com with links provided by a dear friend, David Ratcliffe. Uh, he's got all these rabbit holes you can go down with the do- original source documents and so forth. It's quite a tr- quite an amazing array of information on there. And then we, um, uh, well, with the Substack, I've only just started that, but I intend to place a lot more articles, uh, post them there. So, yeah, Stephen has a great Substack, and I highly recommend it. Um, I so, am subscribed. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, and and also special thanks to Tessa Lina who connected me with Stephen. She's been a guest on the baseline. I've had the pleasure of being her guest. And I'm so glad that she introduced us because, yes. you know, we owe Yeah, she's excellent. I really treasure Tessa. She's wonderful. Right. Uh, and so lady. I'm looking at uh, this essay right here, The Doctrine of Domination and mm-hmm. Robert Jones's essay in Time magazine, Stephen Newcomb, October 19th. Look that article up. It's really concise. It's very instructive. And having listened to this conversation, it will make perfect sense. So we actually have E from Edgewater. Oh, no. Oh, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. He's the second caller. We have another caller beforehand. We have, I'm sorry, we have Taylor from the BX. I'm sorry. Taylor's up first. Taylor, are you with us? Yes, she is. Hello. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Doing Uh, fine. Yes. What do you have for us today, Taylor? Happy Friday. Okay, first thing I'd like to welcome you to the lineup. It's very much appreciated. Thank you so much. I appreciate and that. And it's well done. Thank no, you. Thank you. And the question is addressed to all in attendance. I'd like to know, as I, okay, let me put it this way. I'm an older person, and I've lived a moment on this earth, and I see what looks like the world going to hell in a wastebasket, as we used to say. However, I was taught from eons ago that everything happens for a reason, and that the world does indeed go through transitory changes to purify itself and that there are no mistakes. So my question is addressed to all in attendance. Um, so much of the commentary is negative, you know, doomsday. I, I find that we leave so much of the creator out of the content, out of the planning, out of the resolution. So this is to whoever wants to answer. Uh, where's the creator in this world? I mean, what do you think? Is that just fallacy or or what? Um, but last but not least, day follows night in my universe, and man can't do that. He can't change that. He can't touch that. He can't stop that. So why do we give so much credence to the will and the wrong of man when there is a creator. Okay, that's my question. Thank you. Brother Blue, take it away. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, hello, dear. I'm from the Bronx as well, so hello and welcome. Um, Hi. I, I have become an atheist. So mm-hmm. um, I've searched and just through 
reading and lots of historical religious philosophies and the Quran and, you know, the origins of Judaism and Christianity. Um, I came to my conclusion a long time ago. And so there is no, for me, there is a source, I think, that we all hail from. We're connected in so many different levels and so many profound levels. And for me, I think if we as human beings understood our connection to one another, to this planet that we live on, to the larger multiverse and the galaxies and the black holes and the stars, I think we would have a little bit more respect instead of putting things in the hand of something unseen, but putting it into the hands of what we can do. We can plant, you know, we can plant gardens. We can clean the oceans. We can take each other by the hand and stop warring against one another. There's more than enough land, more than enough space, more than enough food provided by this wonderful planet. And so I put things into that context. Uh, what can we do as human beings and organisms on this planet to not only protect us, but to respect and heal the planet? Yeah, I would just say for me, I, I don't identify myself as an atheist exactly just for the simple fact that I don't want to define myself based on what I don't believe. Like a friend of mine made an interesting point years ago. He said, being an atheist is a belief system as much as not collecting stamps is a hobby. Mm -hmm. I don't really define myself based on what I don't believe, but I would say atheist in regard to a certain Judeo-Christian framework that I don't accept, honestly, and that might disappoint certain people, but my big problem, and you didn't mention Judeo-Christianity, by the way, you just said the creator, so mm -hmm. I don't want to Thank attribute you, that honey. to your statement. Thank you for noticing that. That's what I was waiting to say. Right. I mentioned no religion. Right, right, I exactly. But I do, I, I do want to say a big problem that I do have with Judeo-Christianity, which is an overarching framework here, is that um, I don't like the concept of sacrifice, especially now as a father. I don't really admire a deity who sacrificed his son. I would almost be compelled to be a Christian if it was an, a story of non-sacrifice, if they had said, we live in a world of sin because God refused to sacrifice his son. I would say, you know what? I like that story of loyalty. As fantastical as it is, I love loyalty. But when you say sacrifice your son, that's getting into psycho stuff that I don't like. We don't sacrifice folks. We stick up for each other. All right, my brothers. I heard both of you. The first gentleman said something about he believes that there be a source that connects and sustains and yet he deviates from that to say, oh, well, you know, we can do for each other. But I never, I never intimated that doing for each other was off the table. Mm -hmm. I was just asking about that source. Is the, you know, you're, you're implying that there's a source that has infinite power, but then, you know, you just kind of transition from that you know, I believe we can all do for each other, which I concur. Mm -hmm. But it, what's that source? I mean, you know, you didn't in, you didn't indicate what that source is. That's a, and a what about Stephen? We, we mm -hmm. also want to hear from Stephen Newcomb, and we're running out of time. Okay. Um, all right. So but, I'll wait. Listen. But I, I would also say, though, and I don't want to answer for my brother Blue, but, you know, another problem that I have with Christianity, and again, I'm not attributing that to you, but I'm talking about the dominant religion of this system of domination, ultimately, is it's so parochial in a certain way. Like, I, I wonder, is there life in other galaxies, for example? Are we the only living creature in the universe? At which point I would ask, do we lecture 
people in distant galaxies about the story of Jesus that happened supposedly in a particular geography on this particular planet? Like, how far does this extend? You know, I, I like Brother Blue's reference to cosmic things, black holes and things that are incomprehensibly large and incomprehensibly far away. Because when you start talking about particular geography, like I find it very abstract to go to an Eskimo and say your salvation is based on this story that took place in another language under another political regime and another geography. But Stephen, what would you have to say before we wrap up? We literally have one minute. Well, I would say that with regard to the comment about negativity, uh, my friend Steve Venegas, a dear Kumiai friend, says we need both negative and positive to make a battery work. So I think in the negativity, quote-unquote, that we're discussing here, it has to do with an accurate diagnosis of the harms and the wrongs that, that people have been suffering from. But behind it all is the initial positivity that I spoke to in the beginning, which is our original instructions and all of the ways in which the beauty of life manifests on a daily basis. And that's what we have to be thankful for. Uh, for all our loved ones and everyone in our life that makes our life meaningful. Wow. So, how poetic you. and how beautiful. Thank you, Stephen Newcomb. Wonderful. For a beautiful ending to our show. Check out this song of mine. It's called Love's in an Hourglass. It's uh, an original tune. And um, I want to thank Stephen Newcomb for joining us. Um, I really... I said, okay, someone asked if I could say my substack slowly. So uh, just look up Jeremiah Hosea, J-E-R-E-M-I-A-H-H-O-S-E-A. Look me up on Substack. Look up Stephen Newcomb, N-E-W-C-O-M-B. And, um, yeah, go to my website, JeremiahHosea.com. We love you guys. We'll see you next week. And we have Thank a you so vaccine-injured nurse, Danielle Thank Baker, you. is our guest next week. So we're entering new territory. Peace and love to everybody. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. One issue.